This is OC Talk Radio, Orange County's only community radio station, broadcasting live from Brandman University. Give uh, everybody a round of applause here. Let me introduce you to our host for this evening, uh, the from Critical Mass for Business, Asia Celestino. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you like the food. Special thank you before we start, Dr. Jeff, for helping coordinate this and all of our panelists for coming in. Welcome to Critical Mass Radio Speaker Series. I'm Asia Celestino, filling in for the irreplaceable Richard Franzi. Today we're broadcasting from Brandon University in Irvine, California. This business talk show airs live during the week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 4 p.m. and Thursdays at 3 p.m. on Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, we encourage you to listen live during our broadcast time. This show is brought to you by our commercial sponsors, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, Smart Business Magazine, S&H Rubber, Succession Strategies, Tone Software, UPS Protection, and The Center Club. Today's discussion is centered on outsourcing as a growth strategy. Our goal is to help you learn more about outsourcing, the pros, the cons, and whether it could be a successful policy for your company. Here to offer their expertise is our guest panel. I'm going to go down the line and give each of them an introduction. And thank you again for joining us, especially Bruce, because if you did not know, he's very sick. So we really appreciate your presence, Bruce. Thank you. So we'll start off with Jack, down at the very end, Jack Abbott. Jack has over 40 years of experience in business. He is currently an adjunct faculty member with Brandman University and owner of JBA and Associates. Prior to Brandman, Jack served as vice president of curriculum and instruction for Corinthian Colleges as well as holding senior management positions for Kaplan Higher Education. As an adjunct faculty member with the University of Phoenix, Jack was twice honored as Outstanding Faculty for Southern California. Prior to his work in the for-profit sector, Jack worked in the publishing industry and operations, leading process redesign initiatives and analyzing capital investment decisions. He was Vice President of Production for the Orange County Register, General Manager at Media General, and held various positions of leadership at Hart Hanks Penny Saver Division. He began his career with Kimberly Clark Corporation, where he held roles in production planning and production supervision. Jack Abbott, everyone, round of applause, please. We have to clap for each of them because they're all experts and very appreciated. Next, we have Barbara Barcone. And Barbara is a finance executive with over 30 years of corporate finance leadership in the aerospace and energy industries. She has an extensive background in financial planning, M&A, and operational management. Her career includes over 21 years at Hughes Electronics, where she rose to the position of CFO of the Satellite Manufacturing Business Unit. She spent several years at TRW Northrop Grumman, a pass-through of private equity firm, and a couple of years at Pacific Gas and Electric as CFO of the utility. She also serves as a member of the College of Engineering Advisory Council and a judge for the International Collegiate Business Strategy Competition, Barbara Barcone. Next, we have Jason Laughlin. Jason Laughlin is an entrepreneur with over 12 years of experience in the environmental consulting industry. He is currently the founder and CEO of Incomply, 
an environmental consulting firm recognized for helping large and small firms with EPA compliance. Jason and his team are responsible for the development of a successful web-based application for adding cost efficiencies to stormwater compliance. Jason Laughlin. Bruce Oliver. Bruce Oliver is a professional landscape architect in California and Canada and a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He currently serves as a Brandman University Professor of Ethics and Sustainability. He is also committee chair for the Growth and Services for Green Roofs for Healthy Cities and leads a team devoted to documenting relevant green roof projects throughout North America. Mr. Oliver serves as a faculty member at UCLA, where he taught in the Landscape Architecture Program, as well as the UCI Extension teaching large-scale master planning. Bruce Oliver. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Nina Woodard. Nina currently serves as the President and Chief Insights Officer for Nina E. Woodard and Associates. She is certified a Senior Professional in Human Resources and a global professional in human resources by the Society for Human Resource Management. Nina strives to heighten confidence in business leaders as they move into the Indian and other foreign marketplaces. She helps increase business results by providing understanding of cultural nuances and engaging in more meaningful and productive communications with foreign colleagues. In addition to her consulting practice, Ms. Woodard is a lecturer at Cal State San Marcos in adjunct faculty in extended education at Brandman Universities. She founded her consulting company after a 32-year banking career with 25 years emphasis in human resource management at the executive level. Nina Woodard. That's our panel tonight. So now that we've introduced each one of them, let's go ahead and delve into our subject, outsourcing as a growth strategy. I'm going to open this up to the floor can anyone define outsourcing for our audience tonight? Well, I'll take a stab. It's outsourcing is a process by which an organization identifies pieces of work that can be done outside its four walls um, and find service providers who are able to provide that service and support for them. So it's moving it's moving a piece of work to another location to be conducted. The very first outsourcing I ever did was in the 70s, um, and it was moving a piece of business from one town to another within the same organization, but it was a lower-cost place to live, and it provided a better and um, more um, more people resources, a better job market for us in that, in that other environment. So we moved it out of a high-cost location to a lower-cost location. So that's an example of outsourcing. Great. Thank you so much. And... All of our questions are open to the panel. Some of them are addressed to specific panelists just because of their area of expertise. But if you have some perspective that you would like to offer, please feel free to jump in. So our first question is for Barbara. Barbara, is it a myth or a fact that outsourcing is new? Clearly, Nina just mentioned something from the 70s. But <laughs> you wrote it, Nina. So is it a myth or a fact that it's new? Does this current increase in outsourcing represent a fad or a fundamental shift that you see in many industries that are starting to popularize this as a growth strategy? Right. Well, it's certainly not new. Possibly in the 70s, the term outsourcing got popular. Um, I think people were probably already doing it, but the service industry 
a lot larger in the 70s and then going forward. And now we have companies that just do um, back office services that didn't exist, you know, maybe 50 years ago. So it's it's not new. It's definitely trending up, if anything, I would think, with people who don't want to take the time to, to get the depth of certain skills that they don't feel is, is strategic to their company. And so they prefer to have someone that does have the depth in it that can often even offer it uh, less expensive with more expertise. Um, but that comes, and we'll, I think we'll talk about that in a, in a little while, that comes with a downside as well. Um, but, but I think there's a lot of reasons that companies should definitely be looking at things that they don't want to be expert at that someone can do better than they can do themselves. Can you also discuss some of the main reasons why many middle market companies have begun to outsource their services? Sure. So I think, again, you know, if you were to look at the cost trade-offs, um, being a finance person, I'm sorry, so one-minded, um, but, but looking at the cost trade-offs, and, and again, when someone can do it better than you and less, less expensive than you, obviously you'd want to go with it. The, the downside of that is possibly they don't know your business as well as you do. Maybe maybe they can't represent you. They don't know the strategy. Um, I know in companies that I've been in, we've, out, we've outsourced IT and we've not outsourced IT. So the good part of outsourcing IT is you can get, you know, really great depth and, and the bandwidth that you need when you need it, and then you don't have to have it those people on staff the whole time. Um, I've also seen where IT was not outsourced and it was strategically so brilliant how they how they did the synergies of having IT people involved in everything and, and you could leverage your IT skills and it may may have cost more in that organization, but in the whole business it may have been a smarter thing to do for them. So it just depends on for that example how you're using IT. Is it a strategic um, element of your business, or is it something you just need someone to worry about laptops and internets and and that type of thing? So I think it really depends on what you're doing. So I, I think it it's just people are getting smarter about wow, do I really need to to do that in house, or can I do that um, less expensively? While we're on the subject of the size of a company that may be assessing outsourcing as a strategy for them, do you think there's ever a point where a company is too small to start outsourcing, or too large to be outsourcing because um, I think it's a trend that with a lot of small companies that are starting as a, a lean startup, they want to do things that are going to promote growth in their own communities or with local business and sometimes shy away from the idea of something like outsourcing. Yeah, I think there's outsourcing and then there's outsourcing. So, you know, if you're if you're a little tiny company and you don't want to worry about payroll, for example, or you don't want to hire someone that's just going to sit there and do payroll or your taxes, for example, or your legal, for example. I mean, I can see a really small company, Jason, you can probably um, jump in on this, you really can't afford to have it in-house. Maybe it's not a full-time type of um, operation yet. Um, so I, I don't think small companies should not think about it at all. I don't know if you want to have yeah, that. absolutely. I mean, when we, you know, it was me and an employee one when we first started, um, um, items like that were critical to outsource, and, and it's not that expensive, but... Um, we just don't have the time or the resources to spend processing payroll or and legal situations. So, so outsourcing items like that kept me on the phone with clients, which is the most critical thing when you're a startup. And then that's, that's how we started, basically. So I think small companies is just as important for small companies as it may be strategically for larger companies. And, and if I may, one of the one of the recent Shark Tank shows had an instant, uh, and Barbara alluded to this because there's outsourcing and outsourcing. So when you're outsourcing payroll, you don't necessarily go offshore to do that. You can find a payroll company in your region or your area or location. Or if you're 
outsourcing marketing or any other functional area in your business, you can find local providers of service. But sometimes, and in this particular Shark's Tank story, it was a startup, and the gentleman had a great product that he had created, uh, in, and he lived in South Carolina, and he was very intent on building the product in the USA so that it could be made in the USA and making jobs available in his community. And the Sharks loved his product, and they told him, they said, we'd really love to finance you, and we would finance you, except that we we need to make it more cheaply because right now the way that it's priced, you don't have enough of a margin, and it's way too expensive. And he said, well, I can't, given the quality of material that I'm using and the labor that I'm using in South Carolina, I can't make it any more cheaply. So they said, well, would you consider outsourcing? And he said, no, I wouldn't. And so they said to him, we understand what you're trying to do, but to launch and to get the business going might be more important than just trying to make one or two jobs in South Carolina. And once you start the business and you have income flowing in and you're using the labor market, the advantage that you get by being able to produce your product and bring it to market at $199 instead of $599, then you can build more jobs at your head office in South Carolina, and you can actually use the money that your company makes to make a better community environment. So sometimes outsourcing gets a bad rap, but sometimes it's actually a really good strategy for being able to launch and then create something bigger. And I just want to add on to that. I um, oversee or help with the Cal State Long Beach Innovation Challenge, and we have a judging panel um, for that as well. And there have been products that have come through um, in the finalists where the judges don't like products that aren't built in the U.S. And so, you know, it just depends on who your customers are. There's people who won't buy things that aren't made in the U.S. There's whole websites now devoted to products made in the U.S. And so, I mean, times change and things change. And um, but there's the whole job creation piece. There's a the quality creation piece. There's some countries where they don't trust things coming out of there. And so... You know, I think, again, it's dependent on, on your business model and, and what you're trying to do and, and who your customers are. So whereas your example, they wanted the well, less expensive option offshore, um, I've seen things where people don't want to buy things not made here. So, yeah, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all no one, no one size fits all, uh, kind of answer. I think you just have to look at your customer base and your, um, your product to see what, what fits. I think there's um, a business model that exists that um – especially in, in certain startup companies where uh, requires uh, perhaps a highly skilled, highly educated, highly compensated uh, uh, level of employee that uh, businesses don't have the necessary volume or revenue stream in order to support it at startup. By essentially outsourcing to a contract on an as-need basis, you change those those relatively fixed costs of um employee hiring to a variable cost associated with the uh, startup volume. And so as, as you grow it, um, you're able to add more and more variable costs as is appropriate for the uh, level of output that you create. So in, in that particular situation, I think it affords you a real strategic uh, opportunity to gain a competitive advantage by not burdening yourself with a, a, a bunch of high-end costs and, and turning that to a variable cost Something further to that that we haven't necessarily mentioned is how do you manage that process? Effective management and understanding and appreciating the fact that you are outsourcing, I think, is key to the ultimate success. 
All very good points. I have a question that is not scripted. I would like to ask you, based on this conversation, what advice would you give an entrepreneur who is maybe on Shark Tank and said, I'm very passionate about this business, and I think it's very important that I stay local, I stay within the U.S., and that I do not outsource. Um, however, they have resources of their company that would be much better suited for a foreign market. So I think that for something like that, you, you'd do the best you could to try to find a partner or supplier that's willing to, maybe in the front end at least, give you some kind of a cost structure that allows it to be somewhat more affordable. And then I think you'd almost have to market it as a made-in-America product so that you're attracting people that value that and that are willing to pay a little bit more for it. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of both a, an economic and a marketing uh, mix to be, to be looked at. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, it, you know, why did you start your business? If you know you have your values that, that, that you follow, and if one of them is profitability, that's fine. But if, if one of your values and one of your core goals of your business is to employ people in the U.S. and build U.S. products, then then go for it. You just gotta you gotta get creative, and you have to find ways to, to find profitability, and your products may be more expensive. If you can kind of share that vision with your clients and get them to buy in. Understand, hey, maybe we're trying to do something good here. Then I think it could be a good situation. But you know, economics-wise, it you know may not work like the shark example. Um, it was kind of a yeah, it was it was a guy saw that episode, it was a good episode, and that uh, was just unfortunate. But you know, to her point, to Mia's point, uh, if you don't have a business, you can't really do anything. So you know, there's some trade-offs. And on the subject of the made in America element, are there any products or services? But you absolutely think that that is a really good excuse that Made in America just makes it on a, on a completely different level rather than outsourcing your services. An example for me would be I know that there are certain clothing brands that outsource and you hear horrible things about sweatshops or things like that. So it makes me think twice when I see that there's a brand that was made in the United States. I think not just Made in America, but outsourcing in general coming out of uh, the aerospace and defense industry for many years, there are just some things you can't outsource at all. Um, definitely not outside the country, or at least not certain <laughs> certain countries. Um, so I think that you you know that, and and even at PG&E, our our customer uh, information, their addresses, their their information that they go on to sign up and all that is very private, and we wouldn't have wanted certain information out into a third party. So there, there are privacy, strategic reasons, financial reasons. You have to kind of look at all of those of when certain certain cases, national security, I mean, you just don't go out. Um, but, yeah, yours is the more moral, moral thing about sweatshops. Sure. I mean, yeah, people that – there was a few years ago. I remember there was an – I don't know if this was – or somebody, yeah, yeah, somebody got in big trouble with their sweatshop. And, you know, yeah, certainly people don't want to buy things from – that do that. I think there's a recognition that we're becoming more of a global community and uh, markets are growing and developing and uh, that doesn't happen without creating a middle class for them to consume goods and services. And uh, so I'm, I'm not so sure that, uh, you know, the, the sweatshop era well, still exists may have a, uh, a perhaps a different impact than what we think. Um, ABC Nightline did a, uh, a thing on Foxconn where they, they manufacture most of the Apple iPad and iPhones and that kind of stuff. 
And I think those guys make uh, the, the worker on the line makes a dollar seventy eight an hour, and everybody's horrified at, at that labor rate. And then they went to the first of all, they had six thousand people lining up to go to work there, but then they went to the home that that these kids came from, and it was uh, dirt floors and that's that's and, and so they 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 really. Had a significant positive impact on on their lifestyle at buck seventy an hour, and yet we're horrified at that kind of rate. So, I mean, I think it becomes relative to the economy in which uh, it, um, those people live, and, and the positive impact that it can have on them as well. So. Jack, while I have you on the microphone, I wanted to ask you a question: What is the impact of outsourcing on a company's uh, organizational structure and the be- behaviors that they have before? Deciding to outsource and also after. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's there's a couple different kinds of outsourcing. One is a planned um, strategic initiative where uh, companies uh, deliberately go about establishing um, um, a strategic initiative to move a particular part of their business somewhere else. Uh, in order to do that, they've got to make sure the resources are aligned and that uh, the communication process is done well within the organization. And those people transitioning out of the organization or transitioning to other parts of the organization receive the proper and effective amount of communication. But there's also the unplanned outsourcing that occurs when external market conditions change and impact the organization. And oftentimes an organization that's not sensitive to that can find themselves uh, sitting there looking at an empty uh, cash register or empty customer line because they haven't properly reacted to them. So I, I, I think those initiatives that we can control, we, we have an obligation, an opportunity to plan those, those structures. But those that, that we can't, we need to be really aware of the external forces, uh, either macroeconomic conditions or competitive situations that, you know, cause us to have to react. And, and you've got to be able to react. You can't. Can you give an example of one of those macroeconomical occurrences that people should be aware of? Sure. Um, one, of, one of the very interesting things to me, my very first job about a thousand years ago was uh, a, a gas station attendant. And so the, the car would drive into the gas station, run over this cord, and you'd go bing, bing, and then you'd come running out, and you would immediately begin to... Uh, Pump gas, you'd start uh, checking the oil, the water, the tire pressure, and then wash the windows. In uh, 1972, that changed dramatically with the uh, oil shortage and the gas lines. And no longer do you drive into a gas station, you don't hear the bing bing, you don't hear any of that. Maybe in Beverly Hills, though. Pardon me? Maybe in Beverly Hills. Yeah, uh, I'm not even sure there, but but the reality is you you drive up to the gas pump and the service station attendant has been outsourced to you, the customer, and so you put your credit card in, you manage the transaction, you pump the gas. My wife tells me to wash the windows, so I do the windows. I'm a trained professional, but the reality is that 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 job no longer exists, and and it was a reaction that the Service station people didn't have any concept that, that was coming. And the customer drove that because they didn't want to wait in line any longer uh, to have their windows uh, cleaned or washed or their oil checks. And That's an outstanding point. I don't think most people think of outsourcing as something that can be a service given to them. So, great point, Jack. 
We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. Today's businesses are embracing voice over IP telephones and unified communication desktop technologies to more effectively communicate and collaborate with their customers, suppliers, and colleagues. The Reliatel management software from Tone Software Corporation helps organizations of all sizes manage their communications technologies to ensure great voice quality and better levels of service and reliability throughout their business. Through Reliatel, you'll gain higher return on investments from VoIP and unified communications technologies while lowering the associated operational support and maintenance costs. Learn more. Visit www.tonesoft.com or call 800-833-8663 for information on Reliatel by Tone Software, the solution for quality business communications. That over 73% of consumer packaged goods and retail products fail miserably within their first year? Why? Because they find themselves in the pit of unawareness. You don't want to go there. Call me and I'll make sure that your packaging gets noticed. You know how I know? Because I'm the founder and creative director of MBN Design. We're one of Orange County's most established and trusted design firms. With over 20 years of experience, I can ensure that your brand will always stay new. Ask me how our packaging sold millions in months or see for yourself other success stories on our website at www.mbndesign.com. We're MBN because we're making brands new. Call 714-458-8701 and talk to me, Hector Garcia. That's my cell, 714-458-8701. I'll be waiting for your call. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio's Super Series, live from Berman University in Irvine, California. I'm Asia Salatino, filling in for Rick Franzi. We at the Critical Mass Radio Show would like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download the show as a podcast. You've downloaded over 16,000 shows during the past month, and we sincerely appreciate your continued support. All shows can be heard live on internet radio station OT Talk Radio or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher, and other business-oriented podcasting services. Remember to connect with us online on Twitter at CEO Peer Groups, and for Facebook and LinkedIn, at Critical Mass F-O-R Business, because we all know you have your smartphones out. And remember that our theme for this episode is outsourcing as a growth strategy. We're going to pick up right where we left off before the break, 
And this question goes to Jason. Please tell us a little bit more about your company in Comply and what does your organization do to continue to grow at such a rapid rate, um, being that your company's success is credited to domestically facing outsourcing for the compliance industry? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so in Comply, we, we do compliance services, uh, EPA compliance. And um, on Jack's point, uh, you talk about external forces. Um, uh, you know, regulations continue to grow, continue to get more complex. So um, industries are created based on this. And so, um, you know, about five years ago when I founded the company, uh, we were, you know, our, our whole goal is to help simplify compliance for companies. So we do B2B um, compliance services. And, um, you know, on the outsourcing topic, I mean, we, uh, we, we utilize it on both fronts. We outsource a lot of internal functions, uh, payroll processing uh, that we talked about, legal, um, and, uh, and benefits us greatly. And then on the other side of things, we rely on other businesses to outsource their compliance to us, and that's how we that's how we get revenue. So, um, you know, we're very familiar with that with that argument on why you should outsource. And, and I always go back to the core competencies. What is your company good at, and, and what can you outsource? Um, you know, for compliance services, um, you know, there's no real functional value in um, in being more compliant than your competitors. As long as you're compliant, you're fine. So. Um, so, you know, our argument is, um, you know, we work with, in the building industry. We have a lot of construction companies as clients, and, uh, you know, we have companies that have been around for 100 years. And, uh, you know, companies that, that built the Golden Gate Bridge, the Hoover Dam, they're really good at, at, at this thing that they do. And so um, our argument is, you know, continue to do that. Let us do compliance for you because uh, that's what we're good at. So um, I think really um, being able to sort of convey that to clients and, and to kind of, uh, you know, build the company up and be able to support the uh, the, uh, the the sales from that is, is kind of how we've been able to grow like we have. So, with not any particular uh, specific, what kind of impact does it have on your company choosing to outsource certain services? Um, it's had a tremendous impact. Um, again, we talked about when we were in the, the startup phase. Um, you know, it was just me and employee one, and, and we had you know before you have a business, you have to have a client. So everything was sales, and you know that's my background in sales. So. So that's what I focus on. That's sort of what I'm good at. And so, uh, you know, we, we outsource payroll stuff and uh, we outsource legal, setting up, you know, all that stuff. Um, and anything I could do that, ha- that I had the resources for that could allow me to get on the phone and, and, and handle critical processes like sales and, and operations. But really, um, you know, and then on the other side of things, having regulations the way they are um, is able to, you know, give, give us revenue. By, by convincing companies to outsource their stuff. Uh, we touched on this quite a bit in the first segment, but what other questions, if any were not mentioned, would you have a business leader ask about yourself when deciding if outsourcing is appropriate for their company? Thanks for meeting As a uh, you know, questions you want to ask, um, you know, again, I, I always go back to that core competencies thing. Um, what are you? What is your firm good at? What, what are your founders good at? What is what are your executives good at? What are your employees good at? And um, you know, for, like for our organization, again, I come from a sales background, so um, you know, sales is always kept near and dear to me. So, so you know, I hire people that are you know, they're sales reps, and I hire you know people that are you know all about customer service and, and everything, even operations. It's all about you know uh, client satisfaction. So. Um, so I would I would ask what are you good at and then if you can sort of what resources do you have um, coupled with that and um, you have to basically 
build this picture with your business. And, and some things can be outsourced, some things can be internal, but at the end of the day, everything has to be as best as possible. So how can you, what resources do you have to have the best sales team? What resources do you have to have the best legal team? At the end of the day, you're competing against the best of the best. So um, if you can build that picture, um, then you can sort of build this inherent competitive advantage. And that's, that's how you, you know, stay on top of the game. I'd like to add an example into that as well. That's from a from a smaller startup kind of company to a huge company. Uh, back when I was with Hughes and DirecTV was just being born, we have the satellite manufacturing business, which that was where I was CFO at the time. And it was a, and Jason was talking about resources. So resources of individual people, but even at Hughes, they were trying to grow DirecTV, and they only had so much money. And they had to decide, do we really need to own the company that builds the satellites? And they, they decided they didn't, and they sold my company um, <laughs> to Boeing. And, but, but it was a huge decision. It was, do we need to own that, or can we outsource? And they decided that they would rather put their resources into growing direct which I think was probably a really good idea. Um, and it grew and grew, and, and now it's, it's, it's really successful and large. And, and it, they didn't see it as a core competency or a strategic um, requirement that they had to keep that, um, even though it grew up there and was born there and all that. So again, it was a resource decision, just like what you were talking about, but but a really big one. And you don't, they only had so much money, and they just made a strategic decision where to where to focus that money, where to focus that resource. When talking about strategy and the allocation of resources, it's very important to think about what your model is and whether it's changing for the better. So this question is meant for Jack, but if anyone else would like to chime in, what are the key elements for a successful outsourcing model? Well, I think, you know, Jason started out by recognizing the uh, the need to meet customer needs. So it, it, it kind of all starts with that in my mind. And then is, is it a... An element of process improvement is it, um, you know, something that improves the uh, internal financial situation of your organization, and uh, there should be some specific metrics around that that, that you're able to measure. Uh, then I think there's there's a real employee component of this, and, and you know, there's some significant positive outcomes when. When we uh, automated the pagination process at the register, we spent $25 million. And uh, we implemented that with a specific strategy not to have a bunch of layoffs within the organization. And so we we hired temporary people to operate the old system while we transitioned to the new system, that sort of thing. But the people that stayed with us wound up in um, higher paying, uh, more... Um, intellectually challenging kinds of roles where there was more intrinsic satisfaction for them in terms of the work that they did. But we needed their um, their uh, institutional knowledge and understanding of how a newspaper came together and, and gave them different tools. So so we were able to do that and, and maintain the dignity of the individual in the process of producing the, the overall payroll. And then I think... Uh, uh, Finally, at the end of the day, um, you know, if there's not a, a, a net positive economic impact in, in doing this, then uh, you really have to question whether or not it's it's something that you ought to be doing. So it either ought to generate uh, new revenue streams or it ought to generate an improved uh, uh, cost structure or hopefully both that, that result in uh, 
a more positive economic uh, impact. Right. It should be a synergistic relationship between both parties. Nina, I think you have the best experience in this. What research do business leaders do when it comes to the employee side of outsourcing and whether that is uh, moving into another foreign marketplace or just deciding which company to outsource to? I think the first step is that the business owner has to be really clear about why they want to outsource and what they want to outsource. So the first thing is to really identify why and what. And then once you have some clarity around why and what, before you look outside, I think it's important, based on my experience, that you look inside and see, if we outsource this piece of work, how does that impact anything that's happening internally in the organization right now? So what are the functional areas within our organization or the um, silos or the, the companion partner business stream that will be affected if this piece of business goes somewhere else and isn't in-house any longer. And what do we need to do to prepare for that? Because oftentimes what I've seen is that, and especially if you're going into foreign markets, this decision about how do things get mailed back and forth, for example, um, how much bandwidth is needed for phone lines to communicate appropriate VIOP kinds of uh, um, quality in our phone lines and in our in our um, computer capability and all of that. Those kinds of questions never get answered before the move is already made. And once you're in, in process, it's too late to kind of back up with any adeptness. So then you're trying to build the bridge while you're walking across it. And that makes it a lot more difficult to do. So what and why, and then who internally is affected, and what do we need to prepare for internally before we go out. And then to research where you want to go, I'm a huge fan of the reports that the World Economic Forum publishes. And they have some amazing research projects that they do every year and publish, and they're free for PDF downloads from the site. And one of them is the Global Competitiveness Report. And in that report, you can see things about labor market, infrastructure, all kinds of activities and uh, criteria in all the different countries of the world all any that you've ever heard of are going to be listed in the, um, in the forum um, competitive report. And you can actually see where you have the best potential. Another thing uh, is to look at the World Bank Group. And you can country by country identify what the criteria for doing business in different countries is like and what things might be required of you. So those locations can give you some insights into, again, labor market, uh, banking, all of the other things that you might need, especially if you're going outside the U.S., and give you some idea about some of the legal parameters that you might um, come up against that you may not consider if you don't have that information. I'm going to ask you to repeat that one more time because those are fantastic resources. So what were the two that you So I mentioned the World Economic Forum and the reports that you can download from worldeconomicforum.org, and then also the World Banking Group, the World Banking Group, um, which is also a .org, and they both have free information available. Your experience is specific to India. How exactly did you become an expert in regards to that market to the point where you could give other people advice when they were thinking about traveling there for their outsourcing needs? 
I was on a project with an international bank, and actually the international bank was a domestic bank in India, and we made an acquisition, and I was part of the global acquisition team that did the integration between the two banks that uh, happened at that time. And then I was also part of a change management team that built a finance shared service center for our international business, where we were moving all of our, we were outsourcing all of our finance business to our own shared service center in, in India from all of the other uh, banks around in the region. So after I did that work, um, I, I told Jack earlier, when I studied economics, I had an economic demographer. And that demographer shared with us a, a theory of economics that's based on the way that demographics are pushing and the way that people move around the world is what's really going to dictate how the economy works and what is successful. And at the time I had that study, there was nothing was working. This was the 80s, and nobody could figure out any economic reason that anything was happening or what was going to influence anything next. But this demographer made perfect sense to me. And so I'm sitting in India in 2000 doing this piece of work and looking around, and I'm seeing everything that he talked about in class actually happen. The whole population explosion, the young, well-educated, English-speaking workforce, energized by the opportunity to take on new challenges and to work. And so I decided to stay and learn as much as I could learn about it and see how I might be able to be of assistance to American businesses because for my time there, my real gut feeling is that India is the best business partner for India in the long, for the U.S. in the long term because English-speaking, democratic, um, so many things that can be parallel with us that it really can be a really great business partner, but but we have a lot to learn before we can jump off the cliff in, in partnership. Such a great story. And I am just bombarding, you know, with questions for some reason. But I'm going to open it up for the rest of the panel. Traditionally, the most outsourced types of industries are information technology, operations, and finance. Now, many more industries are becoming outsourced. Can you discuss the reason behind this movement? Uh, yeah, I'll take a quick stab at it. Um, yeah, I think that um, as technology has gotten a lot better and, um, you know, companies are, are able to um, outsource, again, and I go back to, to, to whatever your company is good at. So, so I have a small business friend that owns a company, and they outsource all of their sales. I, you know, I can never do that because that would drive me crazy not being able to be right next to those guys hearing the message and all that. But, um, you know, he outsources all of his sales, and, 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 and he said they're great. You know, and, you know, they do a wonderful job. So I think um, companies that are looking to be, you know, outsourcees are, are really um, doing a good job of making that process seamless. Before, you know, the rant times and all that were very long, very difficult, and often very expensive. And now with technology and resources and companies really trying to compete for that business, um, the ramp times, the, the, the sort of the, the handoff from, from your company to the, uh, the outsourced company has, has been a lot smoother. So I think that's, that's made it a lot easier to transition. Uh, I think, I think Jason is, is right on the money that that's a, a large part of it. But another driver is simple demographics as well and being able to find the labor pools that you need to the degree that you need to find them to be able to actually staff your business the way you want it to be staffed. And I know a lot of, this is not necessarily a popular point of view, but a lot of the um, the outsourced uh, call center work that gets done in places like India and the Philippines, they were having horrible difficulty trying to keep staff here in the U.S. 
And even though they were paying competitive wages, they just didn't have enough people who were willing to actually do the work or be available or work the time schedules that they needed to have them work to be able to reply to customer demand. So the the actual dynamic of supply and demand is and is forcing decisions, as well as the ability to be able, and in the article that uh, Dr. Depp shared with us before this, the article that she shared with us, there are some significant savings that usually can be made to an organization's bottom line. So if they want to funnel those resources in a way that can more benefit the core competency of their experience and allow the other businesses to be done, they're also generating uh, significant economic upward mobility in the companies that they're, the countries they're outsourcing to. How important is communication when it comes to a successful outsourcing relationship? And uh, if you have any experiences that you'd like to share, please feel free. I don't want to hog the mic, but I have many <laughs> that I could share. But one actually that I just read today is a really great example of what how important communication is on every level. Any time that you are going to have an outsourced service provider, whether it's in compliance, it's somebody that's across the street, you really need to have great lines of communication with that provider. And managing, I think, managing a, a vendor or outsourced supplier relationship is as critical and requires as much management attention as an employee does, but you don't even have the same kind of leverage when it's an outsourced service provider. So your ability you know, to fire them is a lot more difficult. You can withdraw your contract, but you're entered into a contractual relationship. So communication becomes key. And here's an example from a professor in NCAD who teaches cultural nuance in NCAD in the School of Business. He, his name is Aaron Myers, and he just did an article in the New York Times, and he's talking about doing a presentation to Japanese businessmen and conveying a message to them. And he gets to the end of the presentation, and he says, any questions? And the room is silent. So then again, he says, any questions? And the room is silent. No hands go up, no people move, everyone's sitting. And so he says, okay, then, and he turns around and walks away, and his colleague, who's Japanese and who's a, a friend of his, says, can I try for you? And he goes, well, sure, but I don't think they're going to ask any questions. So the colleague stands up in front, and he looks at the audience, and he says, any questions? And he just looks at each face in the audience, and he walks up to one woman and signals to her, kind of inviting her to speak, and says, I think you might have something to say. Would you speak? And she asked a very intelligent question. And then he turned to another person and said, I think you might have something to say. And would you speak? Another very intelligent question. So after the whole thing was over, Eric <laughs> says to him, so how did you know who to ask? I mean, you know, was it mental telepathy or what? He said, well, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's in their eyes. In Japanese culture, they don't look eye to eye with you. They never meet you eye to eye. But in this case, they were looking at you eye to eye and their eyes were sparkling. And they would never say that they have a question. You have to give them permission to ask you the question. And so Eric said, and his, his philosophy was, here I've been teaching cultural nuance for so many years. And this was one that even I didn't know. So, and the point of my sharing it with you all in the show is that communication is a lot and very complex, a lot of uh, very important nuances that we may not even understand. 
And so we have to really focus and pay attention to what we do from a communication standpoint. Our website needs to be business English. It needs to be culturally neutral in the way that we approach and communicate. Our information systems need to identify um, uh, context in a way that makes sense across all cultures that we might be dealing with. Communication becomes probably the most important and purposeful thing you need to pay attention to after you sign the deal. So before you sign a deal, is it almost a requirement that you spend a certain amount of time in the country in which you'd like to do business? Or get a good advisor. Does anyone else have any experiences with cultural nuances or communication that they would like to share? Like Nina mentioned, it can be hard to leverage an outsourcing relationship with someone who is not within your office. I think there's a, a really important communication component internal to the organization. When when you're moving pieces of the organization elsewhere, um, I think it's critical that, that employees within the organization fully understand uh, and are committed to that process. And, and if they're not, you know, you can have unintended consequences that, that aren't pretty. So, you know, I think this, this communication process, not only external to the, to the provider, um, is as important internal to the organization. And then, you know, the various protocols within the implementation phase of who talks to whom about what and what are the, the deliverables and the timeframes and, and, you know, the necessary requirements, uh, uh, really need to be understood and, and well articulated. So. I have an example that goes to that a little bit on a, a small scale, but something that was really important to a couple of companies that I worked with. So when you think of the recruiting process, executive recruiting, a lot of people uh, get the proverbial headhunter or the, what's the polite term? The recruiters, thank you. Um, that's right. So um, a lot of times you get the, the search executive and, and the recruiting firm, and they find you candidates. They come in, they, they interview, blah, blah, blah. Well, I was at a company that that insourced that. Okay, They decided that that was a cultural nuance, as Jack just mentioned, and, and it was so important that the person finding the candidates and doing the recruiting understood the company, lived in the company, was an employee, and that they didn't want to outsource that. I know Apple also does that internally as well. And so, again, it, it was, I don't know that it was a core competency issue as much as it was so important and so, such a nuance of knowing the organization and having access. You know, um, you're interviewing with someone and you're like, oh my gosh, this person could be the one. I'm going to go to that CEO right now, knock on the door and get in. An outside person wouldn't have that access, wouldn't be there in, on site. And so it's maybe the opposite of when you wouldn't want to, again, to a company where this is important, um, you make those choices. You have to decide what's important to you. And in this case of two companies that I can think of, it was important to them to have that inside. And so they didn't they didn't outsource that. Although many companies do, there's lots of recruiting firms out there. And, and maybe at lower levels it didn't matter as much, or maybe they just couldn't afford to have it all done in, in-house. Thank you for contributing. We're going to continue this discussion right after we take a break. 
what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. If you are an Orange County CEO or a business owner, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have had these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions through the power of peer learning. These are groups of peers who are running businesses just like you. CEO Peer Groups provides a great sounding board to test fresh ideas and new concepts, review your strategic plans and tactical goals, and present issues and opportunities for a critical discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, and improved business results. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn about our CEO Peer Groups. CEO Peer Groups is a registered trademark of Critical Mass for Business. SNH Rubber is a manufacturing company in Fullerton, California. We specialize in custom molded, extruded, and stamped rubber parts. If your next job requires a rubber part, we would appreciate the opportunity to quote on it. We serve aerospace, automotive, and many other industries. We work with many types of rubber, including silicone, EPDM, neoprene, uninitrile, and viton. Our quality system is ISO and AS9100 approved. Over our 47 years in business, the SNH brand has become known for superior quality, quick turnaround, and competitive pricing. Please check out our website at www.shrubber.com or call 714-525-0277. Let SNH be your ceiling solution. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Speaker Series live from Brandman University in Irvine, California. I'm Asia Salatino filling in for Rick Franzi. All shows can be heard live on Internet radio station OC Talk Radio or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher, and other business-oriented podcasting services. Remember to connect with us online on Twitter at CEO Peer Groups and for Facebook and LinkedIn at Critical Math FOR Business. There are also um, there are also hashtags for us. If you have a question and you're too shy, it's hashtag at Critical Math Radio. We're going to get back to our show theme, outsourcing as a growth strategy. Here to offer their expertise as experts on our panel for outsourcing, I'm going to go ahead and reintroduce everyone. We have Jack Abbott at the very end, owner of JBA and Associates, small talk. Barbara Barcone, experienced finance executive and independent consultant. Jason Laughlin, founder and CEO of environmental consulting firm Incomply. Bruce Oliver, Brandman University Professor of Ethics and Sustainability. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, Nina Woodard, Chief Insights and President of Nina E. Woodard and Associates. 
So we kind of talked about this a little bit in the first segment. What are some of the issues behind outsourcing or the myths, uh, irrational fears that some business leaders may have when it comes to choosing this as a growth strategy? Awesome. I think the the biggest myth is um, that outsourcing equals offshoring. And um, you know, when I first got the, uh, when I first heard the topic of the um, the uh, show, I, um, I thought, wow, that's not really something that we do. <laughs> everything we, we domestically, uh, you know, outsource everything. So I think that's probably one of the biggest myths is that uh, you know outsourcing exists domestically and not just offshore. So. I think that the challenge is um, again not necessarily a myth, but just the ability to con- to maintain control of that work um, because it is. An arms arms length type of an agreement, and you know, on one hand, um, it gives you the flexibility of not having to hire permanent employees, but on the other hand, um, as you were saying, you know, you were saying you don't have uh, as much control over that, and so depending on how sensitive uh, the operation is that you're outsourcing, uh, is that something that you can live with? Is the service provider um, competent meeting your requirements? If it, if it's not, and you have to change, is it going to disrupt your business? You know, kind of looking at all of those uh, implications when you're making that decision. If I could make make a point about uh, culturally, when you're considering outsourcing to even local firms, which is much easier to do when the kind of go into, that if you bring them in house to become part of the team, and they can get right to the culture of what that company is all about, kind of gets the essence of the original owner's vision of what that might have been. Um, that's very critical to creating sort of uniformity across all stakeholders that are now contributing to an end product or a, a final end result. So that's, that's an, un, an interesting way to incorporate outsourcing by bringing them in, and it's a very trusting relationship. Some would argue that with outsourcing, the idea of ethics is often posed as an, a, a crossroads for some organizations. Are there any other types of crossroads that organizations face when dealing with outsourcing? Uh, you know, it may not always be a choice. It, it, it may be a stand business issue, and and it it may be the result of um, you know external forces or competitive forces that cause you to have to do something that you'd rather not do. But if you don't do it, you may not be in business. And, and so, you know, I use the the gas station example as, as one, but but there there are others that uh, kind of come to mind. There's there's a reason that Tower Records is not in business anymore, and and you know they didn't react, they didn't respond, and and they didn't have a choice. And so the marketplace, uh, I, I think, always tells you the truth. It's incumbent upon business to pay attention to and listen to what the marketplace is telling you and then behave accordingly. And, and so, um, you know, I, I, I just think um, smart business people are really looking around at what's going on to make the right kinds of decisions uh, to move their business forward. Okay, and I think that if a business finds that they do not have morality, mm-hmm. Intertwined with kind of the idea of outsourcing, that is such a blessing. I was watching an episode of Anthony Bourdain, and he starts a chocolate business, and he's employing people that live kind of like you mentioned on territories and villages, and he's 
kind of questioning if this is the right thing to do. So we have Bruce Oliver here on the panel. His specialty is ethics and sustainability, and I know he had quite a few things that he'd like to share, so I'll go ahead and give him the floor and let me know if you can kind of read that guidance. I know you prepared something. Uh, okay. Uh, one of the first questions was related to uh, reputation and how the issues of corporate social responsibility, sustainability, and ethics come into play. And reputability is a significant consideration when evaluating outsourcing design criteria. Whether we consider outsourcing at a local, national, international level, corporations, for example, need to structure their business model according, uh, accordingly to ensure positive transparency. And we've talked a little bit about this uh, tonight, but in ethical terms, we might simply involve what we sometimes refer to as the smell test, and which quickly gets to the question of reputability. You know, if the deal or if the relationship uh, feels right, then, and if your decisions in business feel right, then ethically, you're probably on the right track. We emphasize here at Brandon uh, University the importance of exercising the triple bottom line when we discuss the ideal business model. People, planet, and profit are the underlying principles of sustainability, and they must be in balance and equal priority. Uh, sustainability must be embedded in the heart of every global business because, as you have heard this evening, we are truly living and functioning globally, although we've been talking as well a lot about domestic outsourcing. Outsourcing, though, is critical to sustainability, so there's this interrelationship that's very, very important. Ethical and sustainable behavior is at the core of a comprehensive business model that inevitably will include outsourcing, especially today. Our social behavior is at its best when we consider each and every stakeholder at all levels while respecting cultural differences and traditions. Outsourcing challenges ethical and moral values to the fullest extent. There is a cost to ensure that we manage that aspect of social responsibility and in so doing enable all organizations throughout the supply chain. This includes each and every individual that we engage directly or indirectly to ensure optimum growth and opportunity across the board, no matter where our outsourcing may lead or may lead us. In line with corporate social responsibility is the absolute respect for this finite world we call home. And I'm going to get into a little bit of uh, climate change discussion. Um, we have done a very poor job up to this point, and we have not made good decisions when it comes to the environment. During the last decade, we have reached a tipping point with respect to natural systems breakdown. This perhaps can be most clearly seen in climate change. We have all experienced the climate change crisis in one form or another, and it hasn't been fun. Some of us are getting the message. Certainly the impoverished of the world are seeing it loud and clear as they experience the brunt of nature's force. So this week, over 300,000 people filled the streets of New York on Sunday as the United Nations Summit on Climate Change kicked off. So how does this relate to outsourcing? Before we consider outsourcing, we need to take into consideration our carbon footprint. We need to think locally and evaluate carefully. No matter what it is we may be outsourcing, it has an associated impact directly related to that decision. Speaking purely from an environmental aspect, what may be at the surface, or what may at the surface appear to be obvious choice to outsource, for example, outsourcing a manufacturing process to China, may have hidden costs to the environment 
and may contribute to the climate change climate change crisis specifically. The next question, if you'd like me to go on, absolutely. Was the uh, what are the political corporate considerations that we must address in a flat world in order to achieve corporate social responsibility? Before was, you answer that, can you kind of describe the flat world for someone who does not know what that means? It was Thomas Friedman that first coined the term, if I've got that right, flat world, in one of his earlier books, referring to the globalization process that speaks directly to outsourcing. This idea, or I'm sorry, this has taken place in a very short period of time. We talked about outsourcing isn't new, but relatively speaking, it is new. And we accelerated it through the 80s and 90s, where we saw a tremendous uh, increase in outsourcing of our, of our products. And this has led and accelerated the problem that we have today with the direction that we are going in. Exponentially, uh, we are headed on this course where climate change today is a crisis. It is not something that we just think about and then put it aside. Every decision that we make needs to be addressing this aspect of climate change. And until we make it a crisis, we're not going to deal with it because we can deal with crisis situations very effectively. So how would a company that is contemplating moving to a certain country to outsource, how would they kind of prevent any sort of crisis like this that is maybe unforeseen um, in regards to their services? They don't necessarily think about something like climate change. I think we all have to think about that these days. It's it's important that economically we seem to have that down pretty uh, pretty securely in terms of our of our economic models. We can put costs and we can determine whether it's a it's a good decision to outsource and what that's going to what's that going to entail. Uh, British Airways, for example, outsourced a lot of their uh, one one component of, the, of their business and saved literally. Uh, millions of dollars in that, in that outsourcing decision. So I, I think we need to understand that we're not just looking at the economic model of whether it makes sense to outsource, but we need to look at the environmental model and what impact that really entails. An example of a point-to-point delivery of certain products and goods, let's say from China, the World Trade Organization is at a point where They've grown, their regulations are, are worldwide, and it sort of sets the stage for how we outsource. Um, but yet, they're not taking into consideration the effect of that exponential growth when it relates back to the environment. Uh, as an example, there's no carbon measuring or uh, standards and even an acknowledgement of the fact that uh, what happens to all that carbon in the transportation process, whether it be by air, by sea, um, or by ground. And, and that's becoming, uh, that's a huge carbon emission that we don't even account for. Typically, we look at carbon emissions country by country, so it's the source at which the manufacturing is taking place. That's an example. So when TVs arrive here in the United States, we don't even acknowledge the what, what the value of that is from an environmental point of view. And, and that's something that we need to start addressing. In any outsourcing model, it needs to include what is the cost to us in terms of carbon emissions and how can we do that better so that we get back down to a zero carbon emission. 
and that all relates back to the back to the whole. That's an environmental implication, but I'd also like to bring up an economic implication. Is there any sort of, I guess, backlash that could occur if a company didn't crunch the numbers correctly? We were mentioning that for specific territories, it can be relative to what one person makes here versus the minimum wage in another country. So if a company was to give too much, is that even possible? And what kind of results or consequences would it have on the country if they're not used to making a certain amount of money and you came in and kind of raised the bar for minimum wage there? I'm going to try to field that because I had some very clear examples that I can share with you of situations that happen like that. So, for example, in India, it's a country where most people live on a dollar, a dollar twenty-five a day. That's like an average livable wage, and people, you know, they're not rich, but they can feed themselves and their family. And so, a company, an American business owner, came to India and set up a business shop in Chennai. And he hired a driver. And in India, I don't know if any of you have ever watched any of the movies about how people drive in India, but you don't want to drive in India if you're not Indian. <laughs> it, it, it would be at best. And you could seriously injure someone else because you've never moved quickly enough to be able to navigate the streets appropriately. Or you just sit in one place. So anyway, he hired this driver. Now, typically, drivers make... If we just talk in easy terms, uh, 5,000 rupees is $100, okay? So you might pay a driver somewhere between five and 10,000 rupees a month for, 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 uh, driving you around and they would come to work every day and they would think that that was a pretty fair rate. They would stay with you most of the day and there are requirements. They have to pay them overtime and all these kinds of things that you do if they work over a certain number of hours and make sure they have a meal break and all of that information, all of that kind of activity that you do, and that's all required. But this American felt really sorry for this guy, and he really wanted to make sure he kept him. He didn't want to have to get another driver, so he paid him 25,000 rupees a month. So this guy was happy, happy, happy. But that American left and went home, and this guy could not find another job because his salary was way too high. Nobody else was ever going to pay him twenty. Twenty-five thousand dollars to do twenty-five thousand rupees to do this job, and his lifestyle, of course, just like we spend what we make, they spend what they make. So he, it's not like he packed away all that money for the year that he was working at twenty-five thousand rupees a month. So when you go into a different environment and you disrupt that economic strata or the structure of that environment, you create backlash issues that can actually, over the long term, in the short term, it might be good, but in the long term, it creates a scenario that could be more prejudicial or, or difficult for the individual than had they had a regular salary. Maybe a little bit more if you felt like it was important to try to, you know, enhance their, their style of life or what their living environment. Or maybe you could fund their kid's wedding or do something specific for them that would give them some assistance without creating a false environment for them because that inflationary salary really did that fellow no good, and it really didn't do his family any good for the long haul either. They ended up being in a very bad situation after the American left. Really enlightening. Thank you so much. We have to take a short break, but we will talk more about outsourcing in our final segment. 
And if anyone in the audience has a question, we are going to open the floor for you, so stay tuned. Thank you. There's something positive about the word up. When things are looking good, they're looking up. When someone's down, you cheer them up. So how do you move up? Well, when it comes to getting your bachelor's or master's degree, there's one university that stacks up, Brandman University. Brandman is ranked by U.S. News and World Report as one of the nation's top ten universities for online bachelor's programs. Brandman's online graduate programs in business and education also receive top honors. So look us up at brandman.edu. Brandman University. Move up. Smart Business Network is a business-to-business multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at www.sbnonline.com. UPS Protection has been protecting systems in the U.S. against brownouts, blackouts, and poor quality power for over 25 years. We provide power protection systems, including UPS, lighting inverters, generators, and service for clients from coast to coast. We specialize in solving all your power needs. As a direct reseller of the best brands in the industry, including Liebert, Powerware, and APC, we can solve all your power protection needs. Protecting your power is our main goal. We offer on-site or depot repair of our critical equipment. To better serve your budget constraints, UPS Protection also offers both reconditioned and new products. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio's Speaker Series live from Brandon University in Irvine, California. I'm Asia Salatino filling in for Rick Franzi. Thank you to our audience. We haven't acknowledged you guys. You're doing so great. And once again, a final reminder. We have tons of food over here on the left. Feel free to grab another sandwich or a red velvet cookie. Those are awesome. Uh, we at the Critical Mass Radio Show would like to thank and acknowledge our listeners who download the show as a podcast. You've downloaded over 16,000 shows during the past month, and we sincerely appreciate your continued support. All shows can be heard live on internet radio station, OC Talk Radio, or rebroadcast anytime from iTunes, Stitcher, and other business-oriented podcasting services. Remember to connect with us online on Twitter, at CEO Peer Groups, and for Facebook and LinkedIn, we have a lot of great tips, exclusive interviews, and business ideas at Critical Mass F-O-R, business. This is our last question, uh, our last segment, Freudian Slip. So get your questions ready because we're going to open the floor to the audience if you have any pressing questions about outsourcing. Our theme today is outsourcing as a growth strategy. And we have our expert panel of guests. Down at the very end, just making sure Jack's still there. Jack Abbott, owner of JBA and Associates. Okay, and then we have Barbara Bertone. Experience, finance, executive, and independent consultant. Jason Laughlin, founder and CEO of environmental consulting firm Incomply. Bruce 
Ruth Alder, Brandon University Professor and of Ethics and Sustainability. <laughs> and Nina Woodard, Chief Insights and President of Nina E. Woodard and Associates. So we're going to kind of continue where we left off. We were talking about outsourcing from a perspective of ethics and sustainability. And this question is for Bruce. Uh, we just spoke about how outsourcing and not being mindful of the relativity of the area that you're in can affect the economy negatively. So how does the triple bottom line, that is people, the planet, and profit, add up for a sustainable world in regards to the idea of outsourcing? Um, at, at the end of the day, each one of us has a responsibility to the triple bottom line. The inextricable connections of corporate social responsibility, sustainability, ethics, and leadership cannot be discussed in the absence of true understanding of what we mean when we refer to the triple bottom line. If any one of these fundamental principles falters, then we do not have a sustainable uh, condition. We have an ethical responsibility to people. We have an ethical responsibility to the environment. And we have an ethical responsibility to consider all the economic aspects of our business models. So what does this mean? When we consider the business model that involves outsourcing, we need to be diligent. We need to be transparent and hold our outsourcing partners accountable. We need to systematically assess every impact, every risk, every cost, including the social ramifications, the environmental impacts, all the while ensuring fair and ethical contracts that properly allocate costs. Thank you, Bruce. And at this point, I'd like to open up the floor to each of the panelists because this is our last segment. If you have any final notes that you would like to add about our theme today, outsourcing as a growth strategy, um, each of you have a very unique perspective within your own industry. So please share any final thoughts, and then we will open up the floor for questions. You know, I think um, outsourcing can occur either intended or unintended, but I'm, I'm kind of talking to my colleagues here that I'm going to see after the show, my students, and, uh, you know, I think the the ownership of making sure that we all have the necessary current relevant skills in order to function in the workplace is is our individual responsibility, and I'm I'm incredibly proud of these working adults that are sacrificing coming back to school with families and full time jobs and in um, life that that they're doing this in order to maintain a currency of, of skills that transfer into the workplace and allow them to be flexible. Uh, as businesses make particular choices about outsourcing, insourcing, or other sourcing. So hats off to my students. I would say that just like anything, outsourcing can be successful and outsourcing can be unsuccessful. And a lot of it depends on how, how you manage it with the expectations that you set up for the, the provider, um, how well you partner with them, um, depending on how critical that that skill or that service is to you. So it's it's not a complete handoff in most cases. Uh, you know, when I see it as a handoff, then it's probably going to be less successful. They might 
do more of a priority that you're not interested in. They may not do as much priority of things that matter to you more. And so I think you have to you have to manage it. You can't just completely hand it off. And if you if you set it up correctly and have that communication and expectation, then I think um, if the other factors work, um, then it can work. Yeah, I would say uh, again, outsourcing has been critical for our business. And uh, you know, a very wise advisor once told me that um, he told me to grade all of our different facets of our business, from lead generation to closing sales to Accounts uh, receivable, you know, all the aspects. And, um, you know, I was a B minus, A minus, A minus. Didn't want to give myself a B or an A plus because it's always room for improvement. But he added them up and, and, and it came out to a D minus. And I was like, well, hey, you know, isn't that like a you know, 3.7 or whatever? But so, so the point is you want to, um, you know, from my perspective as sort of a, a business owner, business leader, whatever you want to call it, um, you want to put forth the best effort in all aspects of your business. And if that means you have to outsource one facet, and move resources over to the other, um, then, then so be it. But, you know, we, we happen to put all of our assets and resources into lead generation and sales and operations and then everything else, you know, was, uh, was, is basically outsourced. So I think the most important thing is to, to, you have to be the best at everything as much as possible. And, and if you need to use outsourcing, then absolutely do it if you can, get the resources. Kind of coming back around to more the philosophical or the, the ethical aspect of this, you know, the emphasis of, of trying to adapt a systems approach to everything that we do. So in the evaluation of whether to outsource or not, we need to consider all of the aspects, especially in today's world. And I suppose that's what I'm emphasizing here more than anything else. I believe that we have a climate crisis and everything now seems to need to revolve back around that. So that we, when we make a decision, we really employ the triple bottom line. That we we look at we look at the, the economics of, of that model, and then we look very carefully at what are all of the uh, resources that we need to support whatever it is that we're going to do, and and then we need to look at what our impact is on the earth, and you know we have we have as any crisis situation. We can throw money at it. Uh, with another crisis on, on political grounds, we can we can deal with it politically through negotiation. Uh, we're often finding ourselves in war, as we are right now. But when it comes to the climate, the, the climate change crises, this is something that we all really need to identify with very very specifically, because there is no negotiation. We can't throw money at it. We can't negotiate it. Nature doesn't negotiate. And if we truly understand and we all buy into the idea that we have a crisis here, then how do we move forward? And this this does relate back to outsourcing in, in so many ways. That we are on a flat in a flat world. We are a, a globally um, dealing with everything in business whether we're just domestically outsourcing, somehow that touches or is, is, is working on a, on a global platform. And to do that, we need to be making sure that we move forward from this point uh, in a very sustainable way. And the triple bottom line emphasizes what sustainability is from every, from every fundamental principle. There are... Several 
trends that are really impacting the way that we look at work and the way that work is being done in the U.S. And we are in a significant shift and a significant adjustment. If you look at the history of business, every time we've had a recession, when business comes back, it comes back in a different shape and form. And we've been through a recession, and it was actually heard, the bullet heard around the world because it had impacts around the whole globe. Part of looking at outsourcing is looking at any other business strategy that may have the potential to help you build a stronger, better business. And over time, it can mean outsourcing in offshoring sense, but it can also mean outsourcing in the domestic sense, as we've talked about. And I think it's important to realize that there are two different components that we're talking about, and you can't really lump outsourcing into one generalized category and have it make complete sense. So it may be a 100 times more appropriate to outsource domestically than it would be to outsource globally, depending on what you're trying to accomplish and where you're trying to go. But I would say to the listeners and to the audience here that we are redefining the way that work gets done. And within our business enterprises today, we are looking at staffing and building um, internal competency in many, many different ways. And there are new industries that are cropping up every day, like crowdsourcing and a few other kinds of opportunities that are coming up that lead us to look not so much at creating jobs, but identifying how's the best way to get work accomplished. And so I think one of the key words for startups and for businesses going forward for the next probably five or so years is going to be what's the best way to get work done. And how do we get that work done to the benefit of our business and to the benefit of the communities and the organizations that are dependent upon us? And if we can answer that question, it may not be anything we're familiar with today. There may be a huge educational component that goes along with us understanding the ramifications of the changes that are taking place today. But technology, the changing environment, the changing demographics, if we look at nothing except for demographics, we have a, a very different picture of the world in the next 15 years. And one, just as an example, one very important criteria for organizations to look at is how many, in whatever stage you are, whether how advanced you are, how many potential retirements do you have in the next 15 years? And do you have a labor force in your current environment to be able to help you fill all the gaps that will be created by the retirements that are actually going to have to occur. I like to say, you know, I want to keep working, and I'm going to work until I can't, but, okay, I know it can't be that many more years because it just can't be that many more years. So um, the reality of the situation is that retirements are going to start to happen, and are we prepared? And as we're moving and starting new businesses, do we have the expertise internally and the credibility and the information that we need to have to as Jason pointed out, sometimes you just have to hire that out. You can't always find it internally. So just think about how we're changing and what we need to do to educate ourselves to be prepared to deal with the future that we really aren't sure of yet what exactly um, it's going to mean to us in the way that world, the world of work is going to morph itself over the next 10 years.
Thank you again to our expert panel. We have a surprise for all of you before we answer a couple quick questions. We're running out of time. We have some certificates for you as a thank you for your participation and your expert knowledge for sharing with us. As far as outsourcing during a startup of a business, I can see how that would benefit tremendously in starting up a business. However, Mr. Oliver, you mentioned how British Airways saved millions of dollars outsourcing whatever they outsourced, but did they eliminate jobs for our American people? What they did in that example was they decided that they were spending um, where they had they had over a thousand people, I think, um, doing a particular task, or maybe it was even more than that. I, I'm not I'm not uh, remembering exactly the, the the numbers, but they reduced that down to uh, a few hundred people, and then further trying to to get more lean, they decided to outsource that completely. And I, I'm not sure whether this was ticketing agents or, or whatever, but um, so, so your question was? Well, I just see it as a negative impact in some way when businesses have been established and then they're outsourcing and now that eliminates all these positions for people then got people unemployed, collecting unemployment, which I don't think that would be a positive impact on No, and I think that addresses the social aspect, is that when they make that decision, they made it on, on the basis of economics. It was just a pure number uh, situation for them. And I think that we can't afford to make those kinds of decisions going forward, that we need to consider what the true impact is socially. We might be enabling people offshore at the same time and in, in enhancing their lives, but if we do it responsibly, we need to do it with a knowledge of what the impact is. And then before we make that leap, we, we truly evaluate that. And we think we need to think more socially. Is what it is. Thank you so much for listening and joining us in person. Time has flown by and we are on the air, so we got to get off. But I hope that you all have enjoyed this panel discussion. Thank you again to our expert panel and uh, to Brandon University for hosting this event. We at Critical Mass hope that these interviews have given you new ideas to help improve your business and your own career. If you'd like to learn more about Critical Mass for Business or want to refer a future guest, please visit our website, criticalmassforbusiness.com. Our engineer for today's show is Paul Roberts. Our executive producer is Richard Franzi. Our show producer is Crystal Nunley. Our vice president of sales is Rose Chamora. Our social media manager is Melissa Pizzani. Our guest coordinator is Kathleen Shepard. And I'm your moderator for today, Asia Salatino. Until the next show, we at Critical Mass Radio hope all your decisions Move your company in a positive direction.